Yes, well, thank you, Pastor Tom, and uh, it's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you again today. Um, I confess uh, one problem of memory and one problem of communication before we get started. So this is pre-sermon material, all right? My problem of memory. Well, see, I regularly speak to the teens, and I regularly speak to other groups of people, like uh, I spoke at a youth rally this last year, and I spoke on Luke 18 then. And my recollection was that I had not spoken on it here recently. Well, Monday I said, I better double check. Turns out I preached here on Luke 18 about a year ago. So I decided that since Luke has so much to cover, that we would go to another section on prayer. My problem now of communication. Well, I did not tell Kyle until last night, and I never told Nathan. But here we are in Luke 18, or Luke 22, it's the passage God has for us today. So now with that out of the way, uh, in case you're distracted by that or wondering how that all happened, uh, that was that was my fault. But uh, Luke 18 has two really important lessons on prayer. Luke 22 is another really major section in the Gospel of Luke, and so that's where we'll be today. If you're interested in Luke 18 and you came just for that passage, well then let me encourage you to look on our website, and you can find that um, not too not too far in the distant past. Well, Luke 8, uh, Luke 22 here has a really important lesson, and it's during a a time of crisis for Christ and his disciples. And so I, I want us to uh, really give our attention here. We're going to go through verse, from th- verse 31 all the way down um, through the end of that kind of section uh, in verse 46. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll uh, dive straight into this text. God, what a joy it is this morning to be able to speak on such an important text. Not only do we get to see your heart towards us uh, and your desire to help us, but we get to see Jesus not only as the great teacher, but as the great practitioner. And in these moments, to do what he's been doing all throughout the the Gospel of Luke. And that is to teach us to pray by his own example. I pray that you would help us as we face various trials and temptations that you have our way. I pray that you would help us then to respond uh, to those trials and temptations with this kind of dependence, this kind of prayer. That we would be people of prayer who don't just know to pray or know how to pray, but who actually pray. Help our feeble words, and would you intercede for us through Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit, we ask in his name, amen. I think one of my favorite things about real carpenters, or real people who are into uh, working with their hands with wood, is to walk into their tool shop. I know several of you, so I'm not going to pick amongst any of you, but I will say that my neighbor, where I live right now, is one of such people. I went to his garage not too long ago. They were raising little puppies, and we came over to see them, and I looked up on his wall, and you can imagine this if you've seen a carpenter like this. It's like every single thing has a perfect place. I mean, he had like pin boards everywhere with tools perfectly cut out like jigsaw puzzles just matching together, and if you asked him for anything, you know he would know exactly where it was at. He had drawers full of what I can only imagine were very impressive tools that I don't understand how to use, and if I were to ask him for any particular thing, and he's often said, if you need anything, let me know. I've got it. I'm confident he would go to the third drawer or the fourth drawer, knowing exactly where everything would be placed. See, when you're an expert in something, you you have specific tools for specific jobs, specific duties. Prayer, in a sense, is like that. There are varieties of types of prayers in the Bible, each of which fit their own specific use case. If you think for a moment of the kinds of prayers we have as examples in the Bible, We've got prayers of thanksgiving, right? Paul gives one of those in the book of Philippians. We just, I just went over that with the teens this morning. We've got prayers of confession. You think about Psalm 51. We've got prayers of petitions for other people. 
or prayers of intercession for our own needs. There's all these kinds of tools in prayer that fit specific use cases. Just like in the general uh, working world, there are some things, though, that fit lots of use cases. And this is one of those really important tools. I, I think it would be like one of the hammers or one of the, the, the screwdrivers that you would use for everything. Well, Jesus is about to give us a tool, a kind of prayer, and it's simply this. It's a prayer of intercession for temptation. If there's anything that fills our life, it is simply that. It's temptation. The kinds of struggles that we face every day to reject what God has said or to doubt his words, to belittle what he said or to push aside his his words in favor of our own. I want you to think right now, before we even go into this passage, because Jesus is going to speak to people who already have a certain kind of temptation on their mind. I want you to think right now about the kinds of testings and trials that you know are coming your way this week. Now, for, for some of you, you might say, well, I don't really, I can't think of anything specific. But there, there are certainly many of us in here. This week, you say, you know what, I know I've been really struggling with this. My temptation to anger or to frustration, my temptation to doubt or to fear. This week, I know I will face that. I know I will. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is going to speak to in this, in this passage. And he wants you to actually be in that position of need right now so that as he speaks, you're actually ready to take his words immediately and put them into practice. Jesus isn't speaking about this in some kind of just merely like hypothetical scenario. He's speaking to people who are about to face really the, the trial of their lives. I want you right now to put yourself in that, that frame of mind. Maybe you know there's some upcoming conflict that you have to engage in this week, and you've been dreading it. You've had physical reactions towards just thinking about it, even right now. Maybe for you, instead, you, you know you're in a time of need, whether that's financial or relational. And this week, you know your temptation to doubt or to fear the struggle with unbelief. Well, Jesus is speaking exactly to you. Now, we've entered into Luke 22, and it's really in the, in the throes of a really intense time of Jesus' life. So if I can, I want to try to catch you up quickly so that you'll get the full force of what Luke 22 is about. If we were to start at the beginning of the chapter, we find that it starts with a bang. Look at verse 22, chapter 22, verse 1. Now, at the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Right off the bat, we find that the ruling authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. This is how the, how the chapter begins. This is not news to his disciples. It's not news to Jesus. They wanted him dead. For many years now, they've sought this, and this, we're told by the, the Gospel of Matthew, was the time that God had determined was, was the, the time and place. Jesus has already some three times in the book of Luke already told his disciples in no uncertain terms, I'm going to die. The chief priests and the scribes are going to deliver me up, and they're going to kill me. This is how we enter then. It gets worse than that because it's not just threats from the outside, it's threats from the inside. As we learn in the next little section that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, had planned his own betrayal. Verse 3 tells us that this isn't even his own idea, but that Satan himself inspired him and dwelt him in this moment. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, we're told, who was one of the twelve, the closest one. He was the one who held the money bags, the trusted one. He decided he was going to betray him, verse 4 tells us. He consented, verse 6 tells us, and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The chapter starts with the chief priests and scribes trying to kill him and one of his own 
having already had these discussions, waiting for an opportunity. We then move on to the celebration of Passover, but with our knowledge, this is a muted celebration because we know what's coming. The disciples themselves should have also known. This celebration of Passover was prepared for miraculously by Christ. He tells them to go follow a man who had a, it's, it's a whole story with a, a, in verses 7 through um, 13. He says in verse 13, find a man carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you there. Follow him, and wherever he goes, there's where you're going to prepare Passover. Passover, entering the kingdom like a king. This is what Jesus does. When he arrives there, he then celebrates Passover and institutes the Lord's Supper, communion, this sacred rite to demonstrate what he's about to do in visual format. And then in this closing ceremony with his disciples, the note turns sour as he starts to reveal what we already know. And that is that somebody, not from the outside, but from within, is about to betray him. He reveals the soon betrayal of Judas without saying his name. Behold, he says in verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. You can imagine them all picking up their hands. <laughs> Which man is this? For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, God will accomplish his will, but you're still responsible. It's like he mentions to Judas in particular. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Finally, right before our text, we see the cluelessness of the disciples as instead of worrying about what's going to happen to Jesus, instead of focusing on the, the events that are about to come, they're as clueless as we are sometimes entering into periods of temptation and testing. Because look what they're doing just before our text in verse 24 through verse 30. They're arguing about which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> This is where we enter in. So not only have they had the preparation to know what's coming, but they, like us, sometimes are much more focused on our own desires and needs than Christ's. So here's the context where Jesus then turns in verse 31, and then he starts to do what I'm simply calling preparing the disciples. This was a time of testing, yes, for him, but it was also a time of testing for them. You might remember that the Old Testament talked about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering. This was that moment. Jesus had long prepared them for it, and now he's speaking into this moment mere moments before it's going to happen. And he simply turns, and he starts to prepare them with these simple words, picking out, Luke tells us, picking out Peter alone. He says, Simon, Simon. And even there, I think it's interesting that as he addresses the disciples, he identifies Peter as kind of the centerpiece of them, the leader of them but he doesn't use the name he gave Peter. You remember that? Jesus is the one who named him Peter, this nickname, as it were, for him, Rock. But instead, he calls him by his, what we might call his pre-Christian name. Before Jesus had called him and given him this name, he was called Simon. In a sense, it's almost as if he's warning him, Simon, you're, you're in danger of slipping back to Simon instead of being Peter. Simon, Simon, he says this, Satan wants to test you to failure. He wants to test you to failure. Here's how he says it. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, it's important to know, even though in, in modern English, you and you are both just you. In Greek and in lots of languages, you can determine whether something is plural, like you all, or singular, like you. And here, he actually is talking to everyone, all the disciples. You all, he says. Satan wants to sift you all like wheat. I used to, I grew up in uh, Maine, and if you know anything about Maine beaches, they aren't so much 
beaches as they are rock quarries. Well, I remember going out and we would take little uh, like little sieves or little um, pans that we could take and put rocks on top of them. Maybe some of you kids have done that before. You've taken dirt and sand and you take it and you shake it and shake it. And what are you hoping that what sits on top? Maybe like gold. That would be pretty cool, right? Some really nice rocks. Maybe some really nice dirt. I don't know what you're expecting. But this is kind of the picture. Except Jesus says, here's what Satan wants to do. He wants to shake you violently and show that you're really not my followers. In other words, this isn't a testing to show what's gold. This is a testing to destroy you. This is what Satan wants. Now, this is not something unique to the disciples. This is exactly what we experience too. Oftentimes, all throughout the Bible, this kind of spiritual warfare is not hidden like it so often is in our consciousness, but thrust to the fore. We have examples like the book of Job that describes this very intimate scene where Satan has to ask permission to test Job. In Job chapter 1, Peter himself tells us, Peter himself tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, that this is something Satan wants to do. He wants to devour us. And so he's like a roaring lion waiting, seeking whom he can devour. Peter no doubt wrote those words with a lot of personal knowledge behind them. Satan still wants to plot our own failure. Satan himself is called the accuser of the brothers. He accuses us of failure. This phrase is given to him. This title is given to him in the book of Revelation and demonstrated in the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, Satan holds up Zechariah and he says, look at his filthy robes. And then Jesus comes and gives him clean ones. This is Satan's desire to expose our falseness. Now, the danger in that, the, the struggle in that for us is we know our own hearts, don't we? We know how fickle we are. We know how much we go up and down and in and out with Christ. So this is no mere hypothetical scenario, either for Peter, the disciples, or for us. Jesus, during this time of testing and trial, and, and trial, temptation, he wants us to be aware of what's about to happen. This is not mere physical warfare. It's spiritual warfare. He says this, though. I've taken some action. Jesus says he prays for us in our need. And just like nine other times in the Gospel of Luke, here for a tenth time, Jesus, we're told, only by Luke is actually going to pray. He says this, only Luke records this. I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. Demonstrating once again that Jesus is not just a teacher of prayer. He's a practitioner. Jesus is a man of prayer. Jesus, as a sense, as it were, sees the temptation coming and doesn't just warn Peter, but he gets behind Peter and prays for him. Not just Peter, it seems, but also the disciples, even though here now he turns his attention to Peter himself. And now he says, when you, he says, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus also intercedes for us, doesn't he? We're told in the book of Romans that he lives ever to intercede for you. Right now, do you know that Jesus is carrying your burdens before the Father? Whatever trials and temptations, if you say, I don't know what's coming this week, I don't know where I'll be tested, do you know who does? Jesus does. And do you know what he does with that knowledge? He does just what he did for Peter. He prays for you. And what is the point, the purpose of his prayer? Notice what he says. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not 
We could say it like this, the reason that any of us makes it to the end, still persevering, is not because of us. It's because of Christ. This isn't some passive role he takes up either. It's every day interceding for us so that if you make it to the end, there's a reason we throw down those crowns before God because we say it was you who brought me here. Jesus says that he's praying for them so that they'll persevere in faithfulness. Jesus then instructs us on to perseverance. Look at the end of verse 32. He says, and when you have turned again, we'll get to that in a moment, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. Jesus, in this warning, also has an encouragement. And simply this, when you have turned again. That little phrase, that word is a word that's used often in the Bible in the New Testament of repentance. It, it means to physically turn around. But it's also used metaphorically in that way for us to turn in repentance. In other words, he says this, Peter, I'm telling you, you will fail. But because I prayed for you, that failure will not be ultimate. You'll turn. Your repentance over sin Jesus could rightly say to Peter and to you and me, is not primarily because you have worked hard for that, but because I have prepped the way for it. I prayed for you even before you failed. I prayed for you as you turned. So he instructs us in this perseverance. And I want us to think for a moment about two words here. First is the word strengthen. He says, strengthen your brothers. This is a word that's often used in the New Testament to talk about spiritual strengthening, building up other Christians. And he says this, not only am I going to have you turn, but I'm going to have you turn to a place of usefulness. You're now going to be in a spot to instruct others, to help them grow, to strengthen them like I'm strengthening you right now, Peter. Peter himself uses this word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, to talk about this kind of spiritual strengthening. Jesus has a place for Peter. Secondly, I want us to think about what this looked like in the life of Peter. If we can just cast our eyes ahead to the book of Acts, the second half of Luke's volume. How is this demonstrated that when he turns again, he'll strengthen the brothers? This is a prayer of Christ that is answered. Who is it that stands up in front of all Jerusalem, as it were, on the temple steps and proclaims Christ so that thousands hear it and come to faith? It's Peter. Peter is the one who exercises preaching and leadership abilities in chapters 3 and 4. He's the one who goes to Samaria. Peter, the Jew, goes to Samaria to tell them of Christ. It's Peter who opens the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11. He's the one who speaks in Acts chapter 15 to declare the gospel so clearly at the Jerusalem Council. It's Peter who's not just restored to neutrality but to a spot of usefulness. This tells us Christ's own heart towards us. Even as he prays for us, he, he is for us. Peter is a man who knew both failure and return to service. Now, before we even get into how Jesus now demonstrates this, I want us to pause for a moment and think about the temptations and trials that may face us. Maybe you have something in mind from earlier when I asked you to do so. A lot of times our struggles with failure in temptation is that our focus really is on our own perfection for our own praise. 
want you to think about it maybe in more of a colloquial way. Maybe you, like, like us, you've had somebody over before, and maybe your kids ratted you out like they have to us before. I recently went to a friend's house, and when I showed up, the house looked really clean and neat. It's nobody here, don't worry. It's in a totally different state. I showed up, and the little kid, who's probably all six years old, ran up to me, and the first thing out of her mouth was, we spent all day cleaning for you. <laughs> and the mom was like, hiding, you know? There's a sense in which I think our failures, we struggle with them primarily not because of what they do to Christ, because of what harm they cause to him or his name, but primarily because we view our successes like our trophies. So when we fail, it's easy for us to simply ask, well, what's the point? Now I'm exposed. Jesus is, in a sense, by telling Peter ahead of time, you're going to fail, but I'm going to return you to usefulness, is also directing his attention away from himself and onto God's purpose for him. In other words, it's like this. Peter, yes, you will fail, but there's something more important than you and your failure. It's what I'm going to do, and I want to use you through it. So ahead of time, I want you to know, strength, be ready to strengthen the brothers. Could it be that our struggle with sin, with falling to temptation, is not that we're afraid of what it does to Christ or his name, but could it be that our perspective is really solely focused on us? Jesus, then, is not only directing our prayer life, but our own perspective, our focal point. In other words, we could say it like this, it's not about you, Peter, or disciples, or any of us. What is God trying to do through what he sent your way? Now, in our case, we don't have this promise like God has given Peter, that he will fall. We don't know, in particular, what the trials we'll face, whether we'll fall or succeed in them. But if Christ is praying for us, we know this, we won't ultimately fail. And that's what Jesus is after with Peter as well. We will persevere to the end. I want you to now turn your attention to the next little section here, verses 35. Uh, um, I... Yeah, verses 35 through uh, 38. It's a curious section, but let's read it briefly as we'll see Jesus is going to warn the disciples. And he does it in a bit of an odd way that's going to require us to really apply our minds here. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, it's coming. And they said, Lord, or look, Lord, there are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. <laughs> what, what is this passage about? Jesus is going to continue after this, praying not only for them, but with them for the temptations that are about to come. So this clearly is part of what Jesus is after. He's here warning them. Let's start with what seems clear, and that is simply this, that he reminds the disciples of his past faithfulness. And that's Jesus' intention in drawing their attention to the past sending out. In Luke chapter 9, he sent out his disciples. In Luke chapter 10, he sent out 70 disciples. And this is likely kind of a combination of those two, as Jesus recounts. When I sent disciples out, what did I tell them to bring? We told them to bring very minimal things. He mentions here a money bag, uh, no money bag or knapsack. In other words, no carry-on bag that would carry all their stuff with them. Or an extra pair of sandals. This is the idea. Don't bring extra provisions. 
Remember why? He said, I'm going to provide for you along the way. And do you know what happened? He did that. So Jesus is, in a sense, saying, we're about to face something really big, but I want you to first cast your eyes back on how I provided for you in the past. And he actually asks this in a way. In Greek, he asks it where he's expecting an answer. It'd be like, if if I were to translate it maybe a little bit more true to to the Greek, it would be like this. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? That's how Jesus asks it. And they answer him, you're right. You provided for us. So before we move on, I, I want you yourself to think, if you have some great tem- trial or, tem- test- or testing or temptation coming your way, Jesus actually wants you to cast your eyes back to how he's interacted with you in the past. When you face those times of, tem- of testing and temptation, didn't Jesus provide for you? What are the ways he provided for you? Well, he gave you his word. He prayed for you, just like he did for Peter. He gave you other people, perhaps even people in this very room who came alongside you, whether in comfort or encouragement or even confrontation, whether it was to encourage you to stay faithful or to bring you back in repentance. Those things are not mere happenstance. They're from the hand of Christ. Now, just like those people could have said, well, when I went out, I had these ladies in this town take care of me, and this family in this town take care of me. That's where my gifts came from. Jesus actually pushes past where the physical blessings came from back to the source, to him. And if you're going to face temptation and trial and testing and you're looking for help, you can't merely look to those things that you can see. You have to go past sight to the source of them. Even your own stamina to say, no, I will reject this temptation to failure is not something that came from within you, but from above you. So Jesus wants them and us to recognize that any time you've had success when ministering, when facing temptation, when facing trial or lack, that success did not come from your own hand or even from the hand of others. It came from God. And that's so important to recognize before you enter into a time like Jesus is about to outline here, a time of severe testing and temptation, that your help comes from the Lord. He then contrasts the past trials with the future trials. He does this not to scare them, but to prepare them, to warn them. He says in verse 36, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. In other words, before I told you not to prepare, this time you better be ready. In fact, so much so, he says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. This but now is a strong contrast. His instruction is, could be summarized like this, you prepare for battle. Now, it's clear that he's not talking about physically buying a sword, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he's saying this, your outer garment, your cloak, what would have been a necessity for them? He says, even necessities aren't worth it. You sell that if you have to, to buy a sword. That's how serious the battle is that you're about to face. Jesus then wants them to realize his sobriety here. Now, In spite of him speaking like this, they do not understand. Perhaps like us, they hear this and think, physical sword? Am I supposed to buy a real sword? But Jesus, before he gets to correcting their misunderstanding, he speaks of the cause of the danger that's about to happen. Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled. And here's one of the few times in the New Testament where we're told that Isaiah 53 is specifically about Jesus. And Jesus himself is the one who identifies the servant in Isaiah 53 as himself. He says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. 
He was numbered with the transgressors. That comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, where the Messiah, the servant, would be counted like he was a, a transgressor. And he says, that time is coming. And he says it like this, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Or we could say it like this, its fulfillment is pending. It's ready. It's about to happen. Now, the whole Old Testament predicted a Messiah would come. And the prophets in particular predicted what would happen to that Messiah. He would be crucified. He would be killed for them. Passages like Psalm 22 detail what this would look like, where the Messiah himself would suffer great physical pain, but much more than that. Like Isaiah 53 says, he would be crushed for our iniquities, that God would be pleased to crush him so that we could be set free. This is what Jesus is saying is coming. And again, this is not the first time he's told them this. This is his third time. He's already told them three times. This is now his fourth time. This perhaps more cryptically, but three times he's plainly told them, I'm going to die. Now, Luke alone is the one who tells us that God actually altered their view of understanding that to, as it were, protect the integrity of the resurrection. But that's another sermon for another time. The point is here that Jesus is saying that the time of testing is like preparing for a battle. Even the necessities don't matter if it means you're able to get a sword instead. The disciples clearly still don't understand. And look what they say in verse 38. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Now, at first reading, that might sound like he's saying, Two swords should be plenty, all right? But that, of course, is not what he's saying for multiple reasons. Number one, who is he? He's the Lord. He can call whatever help he wants whenever he wants it. They've seen him speak, and the oceans go still. He's clearly not requiring their, their flimsy uh, metal. That's not what's going on here. In addition to that, even physically, what would two swords do against what they're about to face? A whole regiment of soldiers in the middle of the night in a garden and two swords are supposed to protect them. Clearly, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. Prepare for battle, he's saying. What would this preparation look like? Well, it would look like doing what he's already been telling Peter that he's done. And it would look like what he's about to tell the disciples to do themselves, to pray so they won't enter into temptation. This phrase, it is enough, could be translated more like this. Enough of this. You're misunderstanding me. Jesus says. Many translations write it just like that in English. Enough of this, he says. You don't understand me. And so they move on to now, rather than speaking perhaps what we might say would be cryptically or metaphorically, Jesus speaks plainly. Here's the sword, he says. Pick up prayer because temptation is coming. Jesus moves on then from warning the disciples about the kind of things they're going to face to now equipping them and giving them an example in his own and his own actions. For like Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, and neither did they, but against principalities and powers. We, have, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, so whether you feel the temptations coming or not, Jesus says you better be ready. I want you to think for a moment. No doubt, like I mentioned, several of you perhaps have some temptation looming. You know your struggles this week. If I could speak transparently, this, this last week, I spent time with both of my daughters and with my wife, asking them to forgive me for my anger. I've been behind, 
because of traveling back east, getting COVID, all that kind of stuff, and it just keeps stacking up. And what was the result of that? This week, I responded with anger. This week, I responded by being stressed every time something happened. Megan and I ended up talking, and I just had to come to a point with her where I admitted that. I know now what my temptation is this week. Maybe you've had a moment of failure like that. I've had to ask both of my daughters very openly to forgive me for that kind of response over and over again earlier in this week. I know this will be a problem this week, too. Do you have something like that? Maybe you don't. Maybe you say, I I don't have anything in particular. Well, don't think you're not in a battle, Jesus says. Temptations and trials are coming because Satan really is like a roaring lion. He's waiting to devour you. You're a Christian. He wants to sift you violently so that you'll fail. So what do you need? You don't need two swords. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is saying. What you need to take up is prayer. Now listen carefully. I I did not say take up the idea of prayer or know that you should pray. I said take up prayer. And this is what Jesus is about to tell them. He doesn't tell them to know they should pray. He doesn't tell them to believe they should pray. He tells them to pray. And this is his instruction to us as well. Verse 39 begins the section where Jesus equips his disciples. And Jesus returns to his custom all throughout the book of Luke, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout his ministry and his life, he returns to prayer. Verse 39, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. They came out with him. Now Luke abbreviates this as opposed to the other Gospel writers. We don't even know that it's in the Garden of Gethsemane like some of the other writers tell us. Uh, The book of Matthew tells us that, for instance. Instead, it simply says that he goes out to pray to his regular place. Now, think about this. Jesus wasn't from Jerusalem. Where was he from? He was from Nazareth, but his kind of home base was Capernaum, way up north. But as they would make their annual pilgrimages down to Jerusalem for the required feasts, evidently Jesus was such a man of prayer that when he would go away, he had places of prayer there that they all knew about. This is how much Jesus was a man of prayer. And you know that Jesus actually undertook the same kind of prayer in the same way that you and I should do. He faced the same weaknesses, like the book of, Hebrew, chapter, uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, the same weaknesses that you and I face. Jesus faced those. And he turned to the same weapon that you and I have. And there's great comfort in that. Because not only has he paved the way and given us the example and done it for us and to our benefit, But we can also do the same thing he did and find the same help that he found. So he instructs his disciples multiple times, but starting in verse 40, to pray. The command is not a one-off, verse 40, and he came to them to that place and he said to them, pray, or we could translate it like this, keep on praying that you may not enter into temptation. This is a very familiar command. Be praying. It's a command for all his disciples. It's a command for you and me. And especially, we could say, grab this specific tool in the time of temptation, this kind of prayer you need to have. And what's the purpose? That you enter not into temptation. Verse 46 says the same thing, that you may not enter into temptation. And it's very similar to the text we looked at last week in chapter 11, isn't it? One of those prayer requests was, don't allow me to be tempted. We could say it like this, beyond what I'm able. Don't allow me to fail in temptation. 
Lead me not into temptation is how he said that in chapter 11. So here Jesus instructs his disciples in the same way. Pray this way. Now, with all of this preparation, with all of this backdrop, you know that the Pharisees are seeking to kill him. You know the disciples are about to be scattered. You know Peter has been warned multiple times by the Lord, you will fail me. In this moment, you think the easiest thing would be to simply pray. But they do what I do. They no doubt agree with Jesus. Of course we should pray. They no doubt perhaps wanted to. You know, I would like to pray. They no doubt believed that prayer would help. But was any of that the same as praying? <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't it? So they fall asleep, as we'll see in a moment. When he came to that place, he said, pray, verse 40 says, that you may not enter into temptation. So now he then patterns prayer for temptation. And I want you to see how he prays because this is so instructive for us. To get insight into these, these intimate times between Jesus and God the Father. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I don't know how far that is. I guess it depends on who's throwing the stone. But far enough away that uh, he that couldn't be heard by them. About a stone's throw away and knelt down. This position of humility and dependence. He kneels down, which wasn't the custom of the day. They would typically stand. But he gets on his knees and prayed like this. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus approaches God as his Father, like he taught us to do in Luke chapter 11. Father. Now, embedded in that term is, is so much more than simply a title. We saw last week that what this means is that God is for him, that God loves him. He knows that he's coming to someone who is, who is not trying to harm him or do evil to him, but that wants to answer and wants to answer in a good way for him. There's so many things he could have called God in this moment, but he calls him Father as, as an instruction to us that when we come to God, it's, it's our view of God that causes us to come in these moments. He says, Father, and then he submits to God. He does it in two different, at two different times with two different phrases. If you are willing, he says, and then he says, not my will, but yours. This patterns how we should also pray. God, if you want this to happen, but your will, not mine. He says this, then his simple request is, remove this cup from me. We could say it another way, which is simply lead me not into this temptation. But God, if you will, we could say it like this, then go with me. Like we talked about last week, it's like Moses' prayer to God. We won't go unless you go, but if we go, you have to come with us. Jesus then prays for this cup, likely his, his death, the kind of death he was about to face, to pass from him. This wasn't Jesus asking not, in a sense, to go to the cross in that way. Jesus has already predicted this multiple times. His disciples in the book of Matthew talk about this cup, and he says, you'll go through it too. So evidently, it's the kind of suffering he's going to face that he's after. He's already laid down his life. He's told us in John chapter 10, like the good shepherd for a sheep. He's already prepared to do that. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. But still, he knows as a human, like we would, the pain he's about to experience. And what he's asking is for that pain to be withdrawn. But God, your will, not mine. 
And then God responds with help. Look at verse 43. God simply says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven. This angel from heaven ministered to him. And there are some translations that withdraw this text. There's some debate about whether or not this is, um, whether or not this is original. The book of Hebrews tells us that God sent angels to minister to, to, to Christ in moments like this. So whether or not this is original or not, the, the fact is that God provided help for him. And he'll provide help for you too. When he returns, though, we find... Uh, verse 44, first of all, he is in such agony, we find, that he begins sweating great drops of blood. He rose in verse 45 from prayer. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, or the word is for, for grief. His own grief he experienced seeing this sleeping, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In this moment, we enter into really the toughest hours on this earth that anyone has ever faced, because Christ didn't just face physical pain and punishment, but the eternal wrath of the eternal God on him. I don't, however, want this to be a sour note as we end, because this is recorded for us by the author, Luke, who likely, do you know Luke's source for this story? It was likely Peter. Peter is likely the source behind these stories, because Peter and Peter knew Luke personally. This is likely what his source was. Peter then tells us this not to discourage us, but to enrich us, to do what Jesus was trying to do, to warn us, to encourage us not to believe that prayer will help, but to actually pray in these moments of temptation. I just want to draw your attention to three brief applications as we end here then. Number one, Christians do not and will not fall away because somebody is interceding for them. It's Christ. And I want you to take heart in that. That even when Jesus sees failure coming for you, he doesn't stand idly by, but he warns you, and he's done that today. But he doesn't just warn you from a distance or cast help from you from the outside. Jesus actually right now is interceding for you. And if you don't fail, if you persevere to the end, the one to be praised is Christ. Christians don't fall away. They ultimately don't fall. They're not sifted because of Jesus. Now, that's true in two different ways. Number one, like I just mentioned, it's because he's actively interceding for you, actively engaging your faith, granting you that gift. But secondly, because even in your failures, he's paid for that in the moments that are about to follow our story. Secondly, and this is important, Christians should anticipate and expect temptation. We should. How foolish would it have been for the disciples to hear all of this and not see the temptation coming? And yet Peter walks into the courtyard in just a few short verses and denies Jesus ever knowing him some three times. It seems Peter didn't anticipate it. Now let's not be too hard on Peter. Right now you're being warned. Peter could have said, okay, I believe you. I'm being warned. But did he pray? This is the third and final thing I want to encourage you with. Prayer before temptation reveals our perspective. In other words, to pray not just when temptation comes, but ahead of time. To anticipate it reveals a few things. Number one, I believe, God, that temptation and testing is coming my way. That I'm in a spiritual battle that swords will not fight against. My own willpower will not be enough for. I need help from above. It admits dependence and that God is the source of help. 
In other words, you could say this, that praying before temptation reveals that you believe Christ. And no doubt if you were to ask the disciples on a piece of paper, take a test, everyone. Peter, sit down. Do you believe what Jesus told you? Like any of us, he would have said, of course I do. But papers aside, you look at his prayer life and you see that he didn't, did he? This, once again, like last week, is, is not a, a club that Christ wants to beat us with, but an invitation, a warning to pray now. Whether you have some great time of testing or temptation that you know is coming, or you simply know that in the course of normal life that God will certainly have times of trial for you this week, how do you know if you believe that Christ is the only source of help? Jesus says you look at your prayer life. And do you know what you'll find when you pray? It's what Christ found. Like Hebrews 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 16 says, you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So let us prepare ourselves for battle. Whatever it takes, let us believe Christ and believe him not only in concept, but in actual word. Let's pray now and ask for that. God, thank you so much for this warning from Christ. As sober of a passage as this is, it's so important. Yet how many of us go day by day and week by week, never even considering the fact that temptations and trials are coming our way. And here, lovingly, Christ, you have not only told us ahead of time, but you've engaged in these trials ahead of time with us through your intercession for us. You have made certain that if we're in Christ, we will ultimately persevere to the end. But now you want us to engage with you in this fight, to recognize the spiritual battle we're in for, and then to, to believe you not only in concept, but to actually step in faith and pray so I pray that you would help us to be people of prayer who see ourselves in such need that we have to pray even before the trials come. Would you, like you did for Christ, rush to us with grace in our time of need and help in our time of need. Thank you for this warning, this warning that comes from love. Thank you for Peter, likely the source behind here, being an example of what happens, that even through our failures, Christ's prayers hold us still. We ask all of this in Christ's name.